the mother, the grand master of social immersion, joins us today. Through surplus reality, cultural communication, and the ancient roots of immersive experience, we wander through the final frontiers of social engineering. Today, I was reminded of the fact that the immersive revolution is just beginning. I give you Marsha Angel, co-founder of StoryWorks. You keep it all very small and everything. Listen with your whole body. Don't open your mouth. Whereas the Americans talk like that. It's all unconscious, but that's how we affect one another. Playback is all over the world. It's international. So there's when the sun was shining through their eyes. (laughs) It wasn't just... Hi. I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse, and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. Marsha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I am really excited for this conversation. Uh, I think that there is a lot of good things in store, um, as is tradition. We will start off with an uh, easier question. If you could live in any fictional world, what fictional world would you live in? Mm. Well, I would say the world where Lion King lives. Okay, okay. <laughs> is Why that, is that? Is that an acceptable answer? Oh, 100%. <laughs> Why is that? Because actually, it would, I'd have to say it would be the Lion King stage production world. Okay, yes. Okay. Certainly. Versus the film. Um, and that's because the creativity of Julie Tamar mm-hmm. and how she took the film and put it on stage is quite outstanding. And it was about how human beings became animals and how human beings became uh, with masks that sat mm-hmm. on their heads and how human beings became uh, patches of grass that danced together. So it was a whole field of undulating grass and uh, the oh. imagination of creating that world of Africa mm-hmm. um, with just one little patch of stage and a, a handful of human beings. We saw the entire animal kingdom that's on uh, display in Africa come alive before our eyes. And uh, it was quite outstanding. Yeah, I unfortunately have not seen a live rendition of that show. It's the best theater production I've ever seen. Um, but I would certainly like to. Um, I think it's. I, it would definitely be interesting through the lens of having a cast that was, you know, originally animated animals um, represented by people. Because I think suddenly the lines between like the tendencies of animals and the tendencies of humans, I'm sure would get blurred a little bit and kind of bring up some interesting context there. Yes. It was very imaginative and colorful, dazzling, 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 (laughs) dazzling, (laughs) dazzling. Yes. (laughs) I got there. I was so dazzled. I couldn't say it. (laughs) All right. Uh, So, For those who aren't familiar, um, tell us a little bit about your path with immersion um, and immersive theater specifically. Um, Theater without 
a barrier between the audience and the actors or the performers? Okay, well, I've always loved uh, biography, mm-hmm. and I've always loved uh, interaction, interpersonal dynamics. Um, it's kind of natural for me to study interpersonal uh, dynamics, and, and and that led me to become a therapist. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in the but at the same time that I started. Um, training to become a therapist, I got involved in an improvisational theater group. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a freshman at university, so I was very young. I just turned 18 and had just left home for the first time, and the whole thing was kind of overwhelming. And I started straight away from that first semester um, doing 15 hours a week uh, for two and a half years with the same people a core of about eight people Mm -hmm. and we just improvised our lives together that's amazing it was very intense and um very healing transforming um wonderful i uh did a lot of sound and movement and a lot of uh, body work and a lot of interaction we created sketches together Mm -hmm. and uh, it became the bedrock for my therapeutic work. Yeah. So here was this therapy program going on, but in the meantime, there was this wonderful, incredible experience of improvising and just laughing our way through mm-hmm. Monday through Thursday. And uh, the university training was almost incidental to what I was learning there. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of set the course for me. And I stumbled across playback theater as part of my training to use drama as a form of, of psychotherapy. All right, playback theater. Could you explain a little bit about what that is briefly for those who don't know? Playback theater originated in the um, mid-'70s by a, an American man called Jonathan Fox mm-hmm. in um, upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, and he hit upon it through going to Nepal when he was in his adolescence, I believe, young man, and studying oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of developed this form of improvisational theater, community theater, where people tell personal stories and there's a team of actors and a musician who plays their stories back. Yeah. So very much grassroots theater. It's, it's not about your performance. It's about uh, sharing your stories personal events, uh, real things that happen to you in a group of people and that the audience creates the performance at any given time by the stories that they tell. Yeah. And it's this wonderful blend of art and reality. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is, I feel like, very much an underpinning theme to every immersive experience that leverages some form of social rather than, like, say, just pure immersive art, um, something like Meow Wolf when they don't have actors, um, where it's very much just the environment. But the second that you bring the social dynamic into it, that interactive dynamic, then suddenly, even and now, of course, um, playback in that format is it's anchored in real stories. But I would argue that even in immersive experiences that 
aren't based off of real stories, but rather a group, you know, a coordinator, actors working in conjunction with an audience, it still brings in such a different degree of reality to that experience because that audience, one way or the other, even if they're not being themselves, which is kind of the point, at the same time, they're still being themselves. Parts of who they are inevitably leak through. I mean, that's part of acting. People train for years and years to fully shift into a different character, a different psychology. And so having reality as this anchor point, whether it is something like playback, once again, that's anchored in real stories or even not, I think is is a really powerful dynamic, I should say. Well, when it's not a real story, then it becomes a projective technique where, you know, you're talking about universal stories or you're talking about thematic stories or you're talking about um, mm. stories that are fictional. There's really no such thing. A fictional story is based on a real story at some point. Yeah. Because stories, the nature of stories is, is to do with personal experience. And so um, whether you make it up or not, if you make it up, it's still part of you because you've made it up. Mm -hmm. But when you have it grounded in something that actually happened to you, that does dramatically change the, the, the way that the people that are all there sharing their stories interact with one another. And so then it, it adds a different dimension in terms of communication with people. Yeah. Rather than just sitting around telling stories that they make up. Mm -hmm. When it's actually something that actually happened to you, then... Um, it touches people on a deeper level, even if the story is superficial. Yeah. Because it's so personal. I mean, you know, and, and you start and you build it up uh, like you would any theater production where you have, you know, a kind of a warm up phase and then you get to the main story where there's a climax and then you kind of wrap it up. And um, so we start with short stories, little segments, just a word or two mm -hmm. about something that happened to you today or happens to you every day or. Uh, how you arrived there tonight or to be here or um, something quite light and you just tell it where you are in the audience to moving to longer stories and right. you invite the teller to come and actually sit in what we call the teller's chair. And so the audience can see the teller telling the story to the conductor mm -hmm. and the conductor is the person that sits between the audience and the players. Yeah. So the audience can see the players on stage. They can see the musician on stage, just off the stage. And they can see the teller just off the stage. Mm -hmm. So they watch the teller watching their own story. That is, that is so, so fascinating. And I, I'm in, I had no idea that that playback came from, or at least had roots in Nepal, which for me as someone who um, has kind of played with meditation and kind of that whole mindfulness culture, not in any kind of religious context per se, but just insofar as trying to use it as an insight to be more present in day-to-day -day life. The link between Nepalese culture, and I know this isn't all of it, so I refrain from generalizing in that way, but I know that there is a lot of, or a lot of the mindfulness culture or it originates there. And I think that mindfulness culture and just being like very present and self-aware has this really interesting and I don't want to say torrid, but to some degree relationship with acting and then having this thing being um, playback, having that relationship with that is just, wow. Like that, it makes a lot of sense, A, um, retrospectively, of course, but 
it's just fascinating to me. And of course, it's another tag point to be like, of course, immersive theater, immersive entertainment is in many ways kind of becoming a really large wave at this point in time. But just once again, points back to one of the examples of it having been around for thousands of years, but having not been or had the potential to be principal form of entertainment culturally, or at least in this culture, today's culture for quite some time. And now it suddenly is, which is this, this kind of magical thing in a lot of ways. Well, I think that it, it was alive and well in the mid seventies in Nepal because uh, the Western culture has become so uh, complex with its communication and its theater and its drama and, and is kind of um, put the professionals on the stage and uh, at the expense of people in their ordinary lives entertaining one another. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the Western cultures were as good at it in earlier times, whereas um, I don't know what Nepal is like now. I've never been there, but I mean, mm-hmm. perhaps they've gotten a little more sophisticated with with it too. Whereas if you look at the function of drama in the community, it was really to build community and to, and to um, mix that creative with the real as a, as a way of practicing life and as a way of um, uh, highlighting community group experiences and celebrating them and yeah. um, also... Remembering them, maybe? Remembering them and also um, extracting the significance of them in a right. group setting. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes like a group process. Yeah. And that creative... Uh, Thread is a really important way to magnify human stories and 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 extracting the value and meaning of them. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's in so many ways just kind of this perpetual pursuit in just the course of being alive, um, doing this being human thing um, is trying to find meaning and understand meaning in things, and it's. It's interesting because it's become so decentralized in a lot of ways. I mean, there are 10,000 different places, different people, different inputs trying to tell us stories about how things are happening. But at the same time, it's so decentralized. There's so much input and there's not like something like theater. um, I'm trying to think of other things that kind of have created cultural consensus in that way. Theater, storytelling, community, communal cooking, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like that vehicle for making sense of what on earth is going on is now so, so spread out. Well, um, playback is really a mirror. Right, right. Um, that's, that's really the, the, at the heart of it is that you um, hear a, person experience, a person's experience and then you play it back. And the artistic part of it is that you add a whole dimension to it by the way you play it back mm-hmm. that the audience hasn't heard from the teller tell. And the teller hadn't even seen themselves until they'd watched what that group of actors and musicians did with their story. Right. And then all of a sudden they're understanding their story and who they are and what happened to them in an entirely different way through the creative process. And that's because creativity accesses the unconscious. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And a good playback team will uh, 
we'll use metaphor and use imagery and we'll use simile and we'll use um, archetypes and we'll use uh, just moving from the verbal to the sound and movement, mm-hmm. you're already operating from the unconscious part of the brain. Yeah. And, and um, <laughs> so you're just putting a whole filter on it. You're putting a whole new slant on it. And, and, and people just kind of get their mirror, get a mirror of their little snapshot of their story back to them in a way that they'd never even seen before. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of times, whatever whatever you're processing, whatever you're thinking about, kind of stays within the the black box of you know subconscious cognition to some degree. And oftentimes, unless you're someone who makes a point of like consistently reflecting or having some kind of outlet like that, it just kind of stays up there and bounces around for a while until it finds its home. Hopefully, in a good place. Sometimes, in a not so great place, but. Well, that's the responsibility of the of the team to um, not only uh, give it back in a creative form, but also to give it back in a, an affirming form. Yeah, or of a culture, one could argue, which is definitely not something that we see a lot at this at this present point in time. I would argue there's definitely some of it, but um, and I I always really appreciate our conversations, specifically because you have professional background so much professional experience both in psychology and in drama and theater and I think that while a lot of people who work in theater and entertainment and theatrical things of one variety or another wind up picking up some psychology because you kind of have to it's it's part of the whole thing on an intuitive level but hearing your perspective as as someone who has, you know, the vocabulary, the taxonomy for what's happening at the intersection of those two things is super, super fascinating. <laughs> That's nice. So yeah. if if we could potentially um, shift directions real quick, we will move into our Make It Immersive segment. take your chosen immersive world to the Lion King and figure out how to make it an immersive experience, one that has a high level of audience interaction. And I think that it's really interesting that you chose specifically a stage play that is designed to not have that happening. So I have not, I've not explored this kind of concept before, but what would you do? How would you create audience engagement through the Lion King on stage? <laughs> well, that, what I love about it is that it's it's really down to two things. It's down to singing and dancing. Mm-hmm. And um, also what they captured there was the, uh, the heartbeat of Africa. I've never been to Africa, but I felt like I had been there and the spirit of Africa, mm-hmm. which is... Um, so extravagant and so rich and so I have met many African people Mm -hmm. and um, I've certainly been deeply moved by African American music and Mm -hmm. born and raised in Motown um, to understand soul music Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the Africans have a corner on that 
and it comes from mm. Africa and then got filtered through slavery in this country to, to, to end up becoming, you know, something that isn't totally African, but at the heart of it is. So I would encourage people to enter into that vibrancy and enter into that abandonment and also this encompassing love that just pulsates from people's bodies and also their 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 voices and their embracing uh, with joy, enormous joy in it. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of sweeps me away into it. And that's my experience of having met African people uh, from the continent and how they are uh, overcomers, you know. Right, right. And and they know how to uh, immerse themselves in the glory of nature and these, you know, huge animals that are just so incredibly powerful that walk around where they walk around, yeah. not in a zoo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and then the world. magnitude of the landscape and all all of that really uh, sensory motor movement yeah creative thing that goes on you know and i think that it's really pulsating really it's pulsating yeah i think it's really interesting that you bring in culture there because arguably one could almost think of travel as an immersive experience i mean it's certainly immersive um it's not really thought of in the terms of like you know immersive theater or immersive vr but at the same time i think that a lot of times there is a, I mean, there's a cultural context or a social contract of some variety that winds up being the underpinning theme of any given immersive experience. Um, and I do wonder if that as, if that lens could be used more so um, across the board to understand. It just makes me think of the difference between cultures and how, uh, cultures of people express themselves. And um, I guess for me, then the African culture really stands out in many ways to do with movement of the body and also expression of the voice and the abandonment, the freedom of it, which is very different than like the Northern European expression. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure it has a lot to do with climate because uh, if you go back to the immersion of the Lion King, it was that sun that just, you know, on all levels was just shining on you through these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I could fi- I could picture maybe for the immersive Lion King having maybe the sun not be restricted to the stage, but almost doing it like some kind of hot yoga type of thing where the actual environment in the entire experience or the entire theater would be much more hot. It would be have some kind of sunlight going on up top um, to make it really bright. Um, to kind of, you know, take, leave behind the light and dark differentiation of stage and audience. Um, then, of course, you know, you mentioned singing, and I think that Lion King is something you could totally do that with because so many people know the songs from Lion King, having grown up with that movie. I feel like there are very, very few things that you could have, like, a sing-along type of production with. Um, but I wonder if that would be possible with Lion King. 
Well, the difference between Sound of Music and Lion King is that people sing, were singing with their entire bodies, and mm-hmm. and and the sun was shining through their eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just you know the heat of the climate; it was the the heat that had penetrated their hearts, and and then and they were reflecting that, and uh, it really was quite significant. Yeah. So the game would then be figuring out how to get the audience to that point, which is incredibly tricky because. I mean, as you know, as a conductor, as as a the creator, the orchestrator of an immersive experience, how tricky it can be sometimes to bring people into a space where they're comfortable breaking out of their traditional dialectic, their traditional narrative, and entering something different or at least a different context. Yes, absolutely. And yet, if it's um, infused with so much energy, you'd have to be half dead to not pick up on some of it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are half dead people sitting in audiences. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> spirit blockers, we call them, but, um, <laughs> they, you know, you can't help, but just kind of, you know, move your body when you see other people move. It's and, and, and when, yeah, mirroring yeah, and well, and also there's this sonic resonance, you know, when people are breathing with their whole beings and, and, and uh, as they sing, they are relaxing in it and, and letting go. That has a mirroring sonic effect on the audience. Mm-hmm. So a good singer will um, make the audience feel relaxed and receive what they're saying because they're uh, so good at being in touch with their own breathing and, and they're, they're enjoying what they're doing. A bad singer who doesn't sing from their diaphragm, they sing from, you know, straining at the neck. So it's above the diaphragm, very short breath kind of Mm -hmm. makes Mm -hmm. you want to cringe. It closes you up, makes you nervous and, 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 and closed up yourself. So we, we had that kind of Hmm. resonance with each other, you know? So you can really control an environment by, by your presence or certainly have an effect on it. You know, auditory mirroring. Okay. And like, I'm not necessarily going to say sonic resonance isn't necessarily auditory because there's body, um, uh, sound is absorbed by the body as well. And so there's the low frequencies and the high frequencies. You get the whole, you listen with your whole body. Mm. And so you, you put your body in a breathing pattern that the performer is breathing in and you mirror them and you, and, and whatever the performer's body's posture is becomes yours too that's so interesting it's all unconscious but that's how we affect one another and in the way that we are in ourselves yeah and i mean i've never or have only very occasionally thought about the concept of sound and communication outside of the context of just your ears but i mean everything is so integrated just physiologically it does make sense that there would be more components there that your body actually resonates with and understands well if someone's dancing and they and they're really um fully uh generating you know being this generator of movement um then you find if when you're watching them you start to move as well yeah you know yeah. and you're not even aware of it but their movement you start to copy with their movement with your body and so it is with the voice as well. Hmm. Many, many layers there. I really love that concept. Um, I just, I think it speaks to how much more there is to explore within immersive theater. Because if, you know, as you were saying, kind of like the complication of Western communication um, took a very different path than that of the kind of 
social communication in other cultures, other parts of the world, what have you, um, it makes one wonder if if the the type of communication that is predominant in our culture right now has become so sophisticated and so complex and there's even like ways that you can start kind of considering what that looks like as we integrate technology to it, what does that look like on the other mode of communication, the like social communication, the... I don't even know how to put a delineation between the two concepts, but it is really interesting. Well, you're talking about space as well. You know, I lived in the UK for 27 years and um, coming from the United States where space is uh, a, a commodity that's quite free right? and going to Europe where uh, space is a very costly commodity, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of it. Yeah. And there's a lot of people having to share a very small space, same in New York City or any other big city, uh, 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 not any other bigger city, but San Francisco is a very small city. New York yeah. City is an island. And so, you know, then you have people uh, having to share space a bit more like a European city. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> the expansiveness of being able to uh, take as much space as you need and want, as opposed to having to keep your privacy and your boundaries well intact when someone's sitting right on your lip. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And so what happens is that the um, even how much you open your mouth when you talk is different. So if you look at how British people talk, they, they talk with their, their lips quite pursed and, you know, they don't open their mouths very often. Yeah. You, know, they, do you, you don't talk, you, you keep it all very small and everything is really, you know, you really don't open your mouth. Whereas the Americans talk like that. <laughs> their mouths are wide open <laughs> and it cringes the ears of the Europeans. It's to do with space, just even the space that you take with your mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fascinating. And, and that lines up, um, just in some of the traveling I've done out of culture or out of country um, with the, that being very much the perception, especially from people from Europe, that is a big part of the cultural perception of Americans in many ways. Um, and it's it's not super common that that conversation will be had directly, but can it, it does happen. But contextually speaking, that perception and understanding of American culture is definitely there. Yeah, Americans aren't loud in America. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. they're really loud in Europe. Mm-hmm. And everybody will tell you Americans are loud. And not only that, but they just take space. So, for instance, I had a family um, visit me in London, and it was two parents and two children. And so we got on the train. Right. And there are little uh, six person carriages, and then there's a the four person carriage, and then there's two. And so we got on the. Uh, not carriages, but the the actual units where you can, you know, configuration of seating. So we got on the one carriage and it was empty. Right. So I immediately went, because there were five of us, I went to a six-person seating block, expecting them all to join me. They each took their own block. Uh-huh. Including, uh-huh. so the mother sat in her own six-person block next to mine, and dad sat across the aisle and the kids wandered off to the other side of the carriage, you know, and, and just had their own little space and never even thought twice about it. Interesting. They took the whole space, just took it, took it, yeah, claimed yeah. it as their own unconsciously. Now that would never happen with Europeans. Mm-hmm. You would, you would, you're used to having to, and it's because the Americans, they do the same thing in restaurants in Europe, in restaurants, 
if there's a, uh, two seats on your table, strangers will come and take the seats on your table. Huh. And you're going, well, hang on, this is my table. Yeah, yeah. But American culture, that's unthinkable. It's not your table. It's it, You've got your seat, and there's other seats that you're not using, and they need them. So they use, And then so people get very used to having to sit right next to strangers, and that's why they don't talk to them. Hmm. So, you know... You yeah, stand in the, yeah. you stand in the line at the mm-hmm. supermarket and you got ten minutes because there's a long queue, and so in a, in this country it'd be normal to turn to the person in front of you and just talk about something just to pass the time. Yeah. So talking to strangers is quite normal here, and not in England. Why are you talking to me? I don't know you. Even though we're standing there for ten minutes, and you know it'd be kind of nice to pass the time instead of just stand there. But oh no, well you don't talk to me. I don't know you. Who are you? Hmm. And then that's interesting because what is it? I don't know if it's British culture. It's some. It's a European culture of that ethos that I've always heard that people love queuing, specifically queuing meaning getting in line, which I find fascinating if you put it in into that context. And it's interesting that you say that it's more natural to be to lean towards extroversion within American culture because I felt like. Say, for instance, when I was down in Costa Rica um, last year, I felt like very I felt almost the opposite. I felt like there was like the Americans there or opposite, given the context of being in Central America. I felt like the culture was much more social than American culture on on average and that it was even farther down that line. So I find it interesting that you define European culture as the other end of that. I suppose European is a bit broad because um, when I went to Ireland, you know, the Irish culture and the the Celtic cultures like the Scottish and the Irish and the Welsh and the Cornish and um, are very different than the Mm Anglo-Saxons who are more uh, in the center of England and the, and the Celts are on the periphery. And, and so but going to Ireland, it was very unbridled, and everybody talked to strangers. It was totally normal. So I met, said to the man who was our cab driver, I said, um, wow, this Ireland, first time there, uh, is a lot, like being in, uh, a lot like being in America. And he said, surely you mean that the Americans are like the Irish. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, so, which actually came small, first there. Smaller island yeah. in England. So, so I guess I have to, you know, clarify which part of Europe we're talking about. Either way, how, it is how, a really, really interesting paradigm. It is there. an interesting, yeah. So you have done. Did you perform playback in any context when you were living in the UK? Yes. The what, first. Did you see any marked? Um, difference in the way the audience react audiences reacted with the format of playback between the US and Europe is there any commonalities or trends that you could draw out of that or that stick out to you well the beauty of it of course is that the the playback adapts totally to the audience that they have right right and so um the the skill is in making contact with that particular configuration of people whatever uh country you're in and whatever situation of people uh, that is gathered. So maybe any trend in configurations on either side or in what that onboarding process. Well, there are, I mean, playback is all over the world. It's international. So there's like probably, you know, 
by this time, well over 40, 50 countries that do playback. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had not just seen, you know, doing it with a Wales team myself, but um, I've seen different cultures that will play together uh, in training events or, you know, and um, certainly the Northern Europeans are much more cognitive and verbal Mm-hmm. as opposed to the um, Southern European and African continent being much more physical. Okay, okay. And um, some are more uh, metaphoric than others, just straight, straight, uh, as you heard it, is how you play it. Right, right. Literal versus... Literal versus Using symbolic, other kind right. of... Yeah, symbolic, yeah. other forms of language. Which comes with taxonomy more sophistication. Back to that. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, I've done playback with children. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> they really have difficulty if you don't play it exactly as it was for them. Interesting. They cannot handle it if one little bit of it is different. And they'll stop it right there and say, no, no, that wasn't right. No, you got to say that, say that, not that word. It was that word. (laughs) And you're going, okay. And that literal, that literalness was so important to them, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that really, really is. Now, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the format of playback um, as immersive theater, um, is there anywhere that someone could, is there an online community or a website, uh, some kind of group of people who don't necessarily have access to playback immediately in their vicinity could find some variety of exposure to playback? Historically, it's very hard to film playback. That makes a lot of sense. And so um, there are a lot of poor attempts of it on mm-hmm line which doesn't do it justice yeah certainly um, and that's kind of the thing with immersive experiences it's incredible it almost is pointless or it almost feels pointless at times to try and film them because it doesn't capture what's actually happening well i think that's you know then now we're talking about film as a medium because um i think it's very hard you know if you look at how good films are made they don't just throw a camera on a live event Certainly, you know, certainly. It's very different. I mean, you can take six hours filming one scene mm-hmm. with a camera, and, and that's how you make it look like it's very real. Yeah, and playback was organic, whereas the medium of film necessitates a different kind of visual language that oftentimes finds its finest forms in the things or in contexts that are artificially created. Because you have to be able to take 50 takes, 20 takes of a given thing. You have to try. The camera has to, to catch the, the same scene of two, two actors from different physical perspectives. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then you have to you know, edit it. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's people don't realize. But of course, you have virtual reality is a thing that's becoming more and more prolific. And it starts to raise the question of, okay, what if something in that format of recording slash communication could then open up a world of that. And of course, obviously I'm, I'm still of the mind that you always do lose. I don't want to say something. I feel like you lose a lot insofar as that, but there are definitely instances of people doing immersive experiences just on a phone, just across um, like Skype or some kind of video call that actually do still pack an emotional punch and like do really good things and really 
incredible things for the participants slash audience members. Um, well, the photographer would have to be part of the team, just like the musician's role of the, in the playback team is very different than the actor's role. Because the musician is the one who creates the soundtrack. The, uh, the, the musician's the one that cues in all the action mm-hmm. and, and creates the emotional atmosphere for the audience. So their role is ex- in, in, enormously important. So if you were going to film playback, you'd have to have the photographer, the camera person, be part of the team and that they played the story back with their camera. You know, I almost <laughs> wonder if you could do playback if or on film, and this is kind of almost a... a call back to the make it immersive segment in a way because this is another bit of speculation here but i wonder if you could do it with you know the team there but instead of having like an audience spread out have it be like okay if you want to participate in this thing you have to have somewhere between i don't know just throwing it out two to five people because i feel like if you're doing something digitally in order to have it be emotionally resonant it has to be a much smaller group usually um, at least that's the kind of format that I've seen immersive experiences that do go online one way or the other, um, taking it, just being like, Hey, this is either for one person or just a few people. Otherwise it loses all, all context. Well, then you, then you also get into confidentiality, confidentiality issues. And you also get into issues where it's not scripted. So, uh, an audience member, has so much to negotiate just on what story they're going to tell and what level of trust they can um, glean from the team, actor's mm-hmm. team, Certainly. Uh, conductor, musician, and how how trustworthy they are to hold someone's personal story. Right. That if you add the camera, then that it becomes can become very intimidating to people because the whole idea is that you're inviting people that aren't experienced. Uh, in performing in any way to enter into... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's definitely nerve-wracking. The, um, the, the beauty of, of being yourself communally and being yourself in a group of yeah. people, you know... Um, it's a lot of vulnerability to ask from... It's a lot of vulnerability just to, just to ask someone to, to come to something they'd never experienced before. Yeah, yeah. Let alone throw, throw a camera in there. And- it, and realize that it's going to be magnified, magnified so that they have to trust the whole unseen audience that's going to be watching it mm-hmm. through the camera and not just the people that are in the room with them. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, vulnerability and... That's where professional actors become really good because they, 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 know, they know how to negotiate all that mm-hmm. and to be totally real in, an, in a, a role. Yeah, certainly. And vulnerability and... Um, just human error a lot of times is definitely something our culture is not doing super well in the digital space right now. Um, just insofar as people being ousted, targeted one way or the other, sometimes when someone hasn't actually even said anything wrong or, and I'm not even speaking to any specific examples at the moment, but I feel like it's easy for someone who has a lot of eyes on them and that now can be so many people or anyone at any given point in time to have a culturally um, incredibly negative reaction. And I feel like there's a where that's it's something that I think we are collectively trying to get better at, at the moment. But right now it's a it's definitely a thing that's very top of mind to many people. Um, so would you be down to enter into a little bit of rapid fire? Um, and I have just a few, um, kind of faster questions to go through here as we start, um, coming to the end of our time. Sure. All right. So 
Um, first, what is one immersive experience that you're particularly excited about the potential of? I don't know how much exposure that you've had to things like Meow Wolf or the wider world, but this you can take this in any direction that um, that comes to mind. I would call uh, it's a psychodrama term called uh, surplus reality. Okay. Oh, surplus reality. I like that. I like that a lot. And um, that's where you uh, create and allow the, the team of people, the group of people with you to create something that hasn't happened to you, but that you would want to have happen to you. So you're moving into your imagination and it's still personal I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. So I, d- I did a uh, piece of work um, with a, a team of psychodramatists. It was a training thing. And um, so these all, all these people were really good at what they did. They were right. all, and, and yet they were now just becoming group members. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so the man who was directing it was a very highly acclaimed uh, psychodramatist from Argentina. Okay. And uh, I didn't think that I would get a chance to be the protagonist and do my own work. And sorry, just for reference for anyone who's listening, do you by any chance remember um, the name of the director in that situation? Yes, his name was Dalmiro Bustos. Excellent, excellent. And we'll and, put that in the show notes um, for anybody who's interested in looking up uh, him or any of his work or this particular instance. He's from Argentina. And uh, bustus means breast, of course. Uh, bust, breast. Okay. Bust, same word, bustus, bust. Um, anyway, so uh, he said, well, you know, what What do you want to do? I got chosen by the group to, to be the protagonist, so I got to take the space, and I was just amazed with this very highly skilled and highly respected team of people. Right top of their game, you know, Mm -hmm. starting with the director. And so I said, well, you know, I I want, I feel like I want to, I could, I could trust you with anything. And I feel like I want to go somewhere I've never been before. Right. I'd like to meet my unborn daughter. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. And he said, without batting an eye. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And off we went. Right. Now that's, surplus reality it mm-hmm. hasn't happened you know usually you you put on the stage a situation where you have conflict or a situation where you need to examine your dysfunctional role that is causing you to not right, not be right. able to function very well mm-hmm. and that's where the therapeutic healing part of it comes is that we operate on the role and try to retrain roles and, and practice living in a more healthier way right right but this was just like it never happened Mm-hmm. And more than that was not likely to happen because um, my husband and I were, are not able to have our own children. We're not able to have our own children. Mm-hmm. So I was struggling with what would it be like to have a child that was, you know, me and Billy together. Yeah. And yeah. it was all in surplus reality. It was all um, in my imagination and would never be anywhere else right as far as I understood and so to be able to (laughs) so the beauty of it is that um the woman who brought psychodrama to the UK her name is Marcia Karp okay and she spells her name the same way as me M-A-R-C-I-A right right and so when Dalmiro said who can be your unborn daughter I said Marcia right okay yeah and so 
The technique is that you roll reverse with the auxiliary. The auxiliary is the, the people you choose in the group to play the different roles in your drama. So uh-huh. um, my unborn daughter was obviously an auxiliary role. So there's Marsha and I being mother and, and daughter. Yeah. And and the, the director gets you to reverse roles. Mm-hmm. So then I had to be my daughter and she had to be me. Yeah. And then because you do everything from the perspective of uh, my perspective is my story. Right. And that's how you do it so that you you get my information from both roles. Yeah. So I was showing everybody what my unborn daughter looked like by being her. And then, and then Marsha would, uh, get her cues from what she'd seen me do and, yeah. and step into it and take it further. And so we're gazing, I'm holding her in my arms and, you know, it's a big woman and, and gazing into her eyes. And, and I said to her, you're so funny. Hmm. And she said to me, now a good auxiliary, you don't have to keep reversing because they kind of know exactly what to do because they're so tuned into you that they, they know how to play it. Right. And she said, no, you're the funny one. You're really funny. Yeah. And so we had this little thing back and forth about, you know, who's the funny one and where did the funniness originate Mm -hmm. (laughs) with the child or with the mother? (laughs) And here I am, you know, having this immersive experience of, of holding my daughter in my arms who I'd never met before, you know? And, um, so afterwards when we were processing it, Delmiro said that that little scene there, and at one point he is the director of the drama got confused about who was in what role at a certain right, point. Right. Yeah. And so he had to kind of ask. And he said afterwards that that was not um, a mistake on his part or anyone's part that he got confused. He said because he'd never seen a more perfect example of symbiosis between a mother and a daughter than he was seeing acting out right there. Oh, amazing. And symbiosis, of course, is a stage of development with the mother and child where you are one and there's no separation between... You, right, you right. And your, and, Where that connection, that maternal bond is just so strong at that point in time, yeah. But it's also a very, very young development, so it's like two months to five months of age. Right, right. And you know, and and then then it moves into separation where the child at six months of age begins to understand that they're not part of mommy, that they're a separate person. Right. And that separation begins. So we were we were caught in that symbiotic stage. That is absolutely where you didn't know who was mother and who was daughter. Mm -hmm. And, um, did I answer your question? Um, (laughs) or are you immersed in the symbiosis of the story? (laughs) I am certainly immersed in the symbiosis of the story. Um, we definitely, I feel like this, this entire episode has been a multitude of really incredible tangents and I'm glad that it has been very much that because we have, went in so many directions that I did not expect to go by any stretch of the imagination, but I think we have explored parts of immersive entertainment, immersive, I mean, would I refrain from even wanting to restrain it to the concept of entertainment um, after this conversation that I haven't thought about at all. And is interesting because it's not, I haven't encountered most of these concepts in the context of, what is happening with a lot of the rest of the world of immersion, which once again is incredibly, incredibly young, or at least young in, young in its current form, young in its rebirth, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and it just, it serves as a really incredible reminder of how much more there is to the story of that kind of 
experience, that kind of communication that there's so much undiscovered and unexplored. I mean, I haven't even heard the term psychodramatist referenced inside of the rest of immersive theater, which I find fascinating because it's like there's from what you're explaining, there's a very long, rich, highly studied, highly skilled discipline behind this stuff. And I haven't seen it enter the sphere. I'm sure it's there. I'm sure one way or the other potential that I it's potential. It is high has a high degree of potential that I just haven't discovered it or encountered it yet. But that is truly fascinating. Well, I would just like to say... That wasn't a rapid one, was it? <laughs> no, no, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Once again... Um, I'll have to practice that one. Such is the, the natural rapidity. flow of conversation. Um, well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time, of course. Um, I, I very much hope that we can have you on at another point in time as as the world of immersion grows and as <clears throat> my understanding of immersion grows. So hopefully I can uh, pick out some, some interesting concepts and I mean, they're all interesting concepts, but concepts that are particularly attached to things that are happening in the world of immersion. Um, so either way, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and of course, Links to everything that we discussed in the show can be found at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? Anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show? I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Immersion Nation podcast. Thank you for joining us in this adventure. 